Lord, we desire that you would reveal yourself to us in a, in a deeper way this evening as we study your word. Lord, we thank you for how you have preserved your word for us, for the fact that we know that your word is alive. And Lord, we do ask that you have your way. Lord, as we, as we surrender to your will for us in our lives, but Lord, specifically this evening, we surrender to what it is that you would desire for us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change us and mold us more and more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening. Real quick, while you're grabbing your Bible, stand up, stretch your legs one more time really fast and say hi to everybody around you, and then we'll get into our study. Take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ruth, Old Testament book of Ruth. If you're joining us for the first time on a Wednesday night, going through the Old Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in the book of Ruth, we'll be picking up tonight in chapter three. Last last week, uh, I was blessed to at least see part of it. I got to finish watching it. I hope you all were blessed by Eddie sharing last week. And uh, Pastor Brad and I just had a real blessed time when we were at that conference last week. But a couple of weeks prior to that, we've been going through this story in Ruth. And if you'll remember, chapter one introduced to uh, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and her family, her husband Elimelech, their two sons, Famine in the land. They lived in the town of Bethlehem. They flee the the area because of the famine. Uh, Their sons marry Moabite women. Then dad and the two boys die. And Naomi is left with her two daughter-in-laws, Moabite women. Ruth decides to come back. Uh, Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, stays back in Moab. So Ruth comes back with Naomi to her hometown in Bethlehem. And we see in chapter 2 then, as in our study last time, Ruth, stepping out in faith, goes to work and to glean in the fields. And as we talked last time, just so happened, she ended up in the field of Boaz, their their near relative, a very well-off man uh, uh, in his fields. And and we saw that in chapter 2 as we're going through that and... and, uh, identifying her, saying, protecting her, giving her uh, favor in, in the, as she is gleaning and going through the fields there. Naomi, as we saw in chapter one, when she came back, she says, she even told the people in the town, don't call me Naomi, call me Bara, Mara. Mara, not Bara, Mara. Bara, that's created. Mara, bitter. 
Don't call me blessed, call me bitter because God has turned on me, you know, and, and because of her situation that she was going through, she looked at the immediate circumstances, saw that and felt that God has just taken a heavy hand on her. But now we see at the end of chapter two, as we're tra- transitioning into chapter three, Naomi totally changed her view of things and now is excited because of that. And I'm, I'm challenged by that when, when I just was beginning and kind of going back through reading the first two chapters, getting ready to get into chapter three, challenged again in that in my, in my own life at times when we just can look at our current situation and, and can uh, get frustrated, even frustrated at God. What are you doing, God? Have you forgotten about me? And, and feeling that God has turned on us. And I, I think it's so interesting that how quickly things change. And we look at Naomi and how her whole outlook changes. Did God change? God didn't change at all. Did God's plans change? Not a bit. But instead of wasting all of that time being frustrated and and even angry at God, see, all of that focus could have been, all right, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand it completely, but I know you're working, and I know that you have a plan, and I know because you love me that you have a very special plan for me. We saw the faith of Ruth. And again, challenged by that, here's a brand new, let's, if we look at it in, in terms of, of Christianity, a brand new believer. And she looks at Naomi and said, based on what you've told me about your God, that's the God that I want to serve. And then she goes out passionately and excitedly, despite Naomi's outlook, <laughs> Ruth goes forward and in great faith steps out. What, a, again, an example for us. Well, chapter 3. We continue our study now. Then Naomi, because of all of these things that have transpired now with Boaz, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight." So as we finish chapter two, we saw that she went through the wheat harvest or the barley harvest, then the wheat harvest and all of this gleaning, all of this. Well, now we're into this different transition after the harvest and they're gonna winnow the, the, at the threshing floor the, the harvest. And what they would do, there was these high, higher areas and at night when the breezes would come, they would throw the, the, the wheat or the barley up into the air and the chaff was lighter so the breeze would blow it away and the kernels then would fall down. It was a process that they would do. And somehow... Naomi must have checked the Google calendar and saw that it was Boaz's night to have the threshing floor, and she says, you get on up there, because there's, a, there's, a, there's something that you need to do. She says, wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So she said, wash yourself. Get yourself looking, looking all nice, perf- you know, anoint yourself, change your clothes out of your widow's garments, because she's a widow, and put on your best clothes. And again, these, these are poor women, so she doesn't have like the, a closet full of clothes, but she's saying, put on your nice garments. Take your, take your widow's clothing off. And it's, she says in verse four, it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. She says, take notice, because it's going to get dark, 
And when it's dark, you're not going to be able to see anything. So pay attention to where he lays down. And he's going to stay there because after they're done with all of this, they have to stay and protect the, the, the grain that they have there. So pay attention where he, what he's doing. And when he goes up, then uncover his feet and go lay down. And her response, not, what, what are you talking about? No, she says, I'll do all that you say. So, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, now don't be confused, he didn't, he wasn't, this wasn't like a big party and he got, he got drunk, that's not what this is meaning. They, they, they have a feast, they have a celebration because of the harvest time. So this is a, it was a party, but it wasn't a drunken party. They had a, a great a feast afterwards and fill, filled up and, and everything and so he's gonna lay down and just crash. He, when he would lie down at the end of the heap of grain, she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Uh, unbelievably to me, and I, I guess I shouldn't say unbelievably, I mean, I, it, it never ceases to amaze me where the world takes certain things, but I actually saw two different commentaries that I read to this point in the commentaries and put them aside. They were online commentaries I was looking through that said that this was a, an act of seduction from Ruth, trying to seduce him sexually this evening, and, and that type of thing. And I was just like, why do we have to go? The, it, it says nothing about this. As a matter of fact, when we, when we look at this, uncovering his feet and laying down there is not an act of seduction. It is totally an act of submission. She is placing herself at his feet in an act of submission. We're going to see, and, and we'll discuss, that this was, it was a wedding proposal. I mean, she is, she is making herself available as a bride, and we're going to see as we work through this that, she's, that, that that is her absolute intent, and that's Naomi's intent going this. But this wasn't a sexual advance whatsoever. It was a total act of submission. And as I look at this again as dealing with the marriage proposal that is coming, that's a great place to start in the relationship. I, I, I have to tell you, I've, I have been asked, and I actually counseled through and got moved past that to do a wedding at one time, where the wife said, when it comes to the vows, I won't say and obey. And I said, really? And why is that? And she and it went along and, that, and talked about this whole idea of women have advanced from that and we don't, da-da-da-da-da, and yeah, and through this whole thing. And there has been a sweep, you know, I'm sure you know that, this isn't a shock to anybody, it was a shock to me as a, from, coming from a Christian, but for, from the world that says, we won't do that, we won't submit as wives, you know, and I obey, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Submission in marriage is not, has nothing to do with equality, nothing. Husbands and wives, men, women, the Bible is clear, we are equal. There is no difference in that, but it has to do with an order. Paul tells us in Ephesians, to the wives, he says, Ephesians chapter five, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. That's the order of things. And again, it's not a subservient act, it's not that I, lesser quality, it's the order of things. Now, husbands, he goes on to say, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Guys, if you were here a few weeks ago when we had our Husbands Love Your Wives conference, we broke that verse down and we looked at it over several different teachings and from several different angles. Loving, loving our wives as Christ loves the church means that we love them unconditionally, sacrificially, actively, gently, patiently, humbly. That's how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now I look at this again, and it's, it's interesting to me because we see this and it says that, that she came in this submissive act to Boaz, and we as men in our stubbornness can say, yep, she submits to me, I'll love her as Christ loved the church. But just because it goes in that order in Ephesians doesn't mean it goes in that order because we've seen how Boaz has actively loved Ruth to this point. And guys, I would challenge all of us as husbands, if we love our wives unconditionally, sacrificially, actively, humbly, as Christ loved the church, there isn't a woman in here that wouldn't actively submit to a husband like that. Any, any, any women argue with me on that? <laughs> no. No, and that's the natural order of things. And as we understand that and we embrace this and we see this beautiful love story unfold because Boaz wasn't saying submit to me and she wasn't calling out his role. No, they were just focused on what they are to do. And that's, that, is, that, that would be the success of any marriage is to say, Lord, what would you have me do? How am I to be loving, actively loving my wife? And wives saying, Lord, how am I to be actively submitting to my husband? That, that we live with one another in an understanding way. Now, that doesn't mean that we will completely understand one another. Get that, let's get that clear right now. <laughs> Ladies, we don't understand. Just, you know, you say that, and I know you say it, and you just don't understand. We don't. We don't. And we're gonna, we will, but we, we love you anyway. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I know there's that temptation, ladies, to say, you know, we, you know, that we as men should get in touch with our feminine side. Let's just get this clear. We don't have one. God took our feminine side to create you. It's back in Genesis. That's how it happened. So we don't, we don't have one, but we are two husbands actively love our wives and wives submit. And, and we see this here, and it's just this, this beautiful picture of that submission, husband to wife. And we're going to see, as we continue to go through this, we'll point this out throughout the study as we finish up tonight again, this is a beautiful picture of, of Christ and the church, Christ and us, Boaz, a, a type of, of Christ, and us as Ruth, a type of us as the church, and submitting humbly to him. It happened, verse 8, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Imagine, Boaz, sleeping, conked out, you know, big dinner, sleeping like, you know, and all of a sudden wakes up, something at his feet. Any, anybody been camping or something like that, and it's dark, and you feel something move at your feet, you know, or I fell asleep one time, I remember, on the couch when I was a kid, and I had just watched um, American Werewolf in London, and it was one of those just like totally scary movies, if any of you saw that, you know, and so, and I fell asleep downstairs in our basement, and my dog licked my face and his little whiskers, I freaked out. Freaked out in the middle of the night, I woke up, and I was just screaming and running upstairs, and anyway, I don't know why I told you that. <laughs> Startled him. 
woke up in the middle of the night and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. That word close relative there is the same one we talked of last time in verse 20 of chapter 2, that, that, that Hebrew word meaning goel, that close relative, the one that, that is the, the protector, the one that is spoken of, if we're back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where, where the Lord makes provision for a family in the case of, of where, where the husband would die, Deuteronomy 25, when, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her for herself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted from Israel." And it goes on, the kinsman redeemer also. We've talked of that as we've studied through the Old Testament. He would be the avenger in the case of a, of a murder. He would be the one that could buy back property. They had the year of Jubilee where land would always go back to the original owners of the land. But if you were to mortgage your property or sell your land for whatever reason before that, a redeemer from your family could buy that land back so that all, that's this idea of this Goel that is here. And she said, I am Ruth. And she's pointing out now, you're my Goel. You are, you are that close relative to me because I married into a Limelech's family. And she's saying now, cover me with your protection. It's the same word if you look back in verse, or chapter, yeah, chapter 2, verse 12. When Boaz speaking to her, saying, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That same word for under your wings is that same one here for spread your covering, that wing. She, this is the marriage proposal. She is proposing marriage here. You're my redeemer. Cover me with your protection. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And again, here that high moral um, woman and uh, do not fear. Just what a beautiful uh, poetic uh, language he is using here and just calming her. I can't, again, imagine what's got to be going through her mind through all of this, but just this great, awesome, this wonderful man, this woman of excellence, as he calls her. Now it is true, I come, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Again, I find that interesting. Naomi knew when he was supposed to be up at the threshing floor. Boaz obviously has done a little homework himself. Uh, Ruth Ruth has obviously caught his eye as we've talked last time as he's shown her great favor and kindness and he was probably going through and he realized, man, there's somebody closer than me already. He's already he already understands that. Remain this night, he says, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. You know what? Look at that again. 
here it is. This, you'd think that, man, God is totally lining this whole thing up, right? I mean, all of the things that we've seen. And it would be easy for Boaz at this point to say, man, this, this is just a no-brainer. Of course I'll redeem you. Let's, let's just go take care of it right now. But, but that would be cutting corners because God's word said that there was a process to go through. There was somebody that was before him. And here, Boaz, trusting in the word of God, trusting in following the process that God lays out as opposed to cutting corners, we can easily convince ourselves that, man, all of it's lined up. And, you know, I know that the word says this, that, you know, that, 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 you know just as a friend, I know the Bible says that we're not supposed to live together before we're married. But, man, everything else sure has lined up to this point. And, you know, we got this great deal on this apartment, and we are going to get married in six, eight months, so we'll just cut this corner a little bit. No, the word of God, honor what God says in his word, all of it. And here's Boaz saying, you know what? We need to be obedient. God's word says that the next of kin, that kinsman redeemer has a right before I do, so I will go to him in the morning. You just lie down, stay here through the, through the night. He doesn't want her going in the middle of the night when it would be dangerous walking home. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And, she, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and laid it on her that she went into the city. Then she went into the city, loaded her up with a huge load, I mean, weeks worth of food to send her home, again, as a total gift. Now, before, remember last time, he had her work for it to still pick it up, to glean it, didn't want her to feel like it was just a gift given to her, but made it real easy. They said, told the workers, hey, just throw it out, handfuls of goodness of, you know, in front of her, but, but have her still go on. Now he's just like, here, hold it open, and he just pours the, pours the grain into her cloak to take home. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? <laughs> Couldn't tell by this huge backpack she's carrying. The question is, it's, as it's written, it, it seems to almost ask, ask the question, who are you? And at first question would be, what do you mean, who am I? But it's almost like, are you Ruth the Moabitess or are you Mrs. Boaz? Kind of that maybe a question as to what is kind of going on there. And she told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Is that one of the hardest words for you to wait? <laughs> I, I hate waiting. Patience is, is certainly not my long suit at all. And I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but at times it feels like, man, again, everything is heading this direction. It's obviously God wants this to take place, so I'm just going to help it along. I'm going to help God. God's a busy guy, probably could use my help anyway, so I'm just going to jump in and help move this right along, right? Anybody, anybody else ever, ever deal with that? Better hurry up. You know, if we don't act now, God, like, if, God, if we miss this opportunity, right, better act now, God, and I know you're busy, so I'll just go ahead and move on here. You can catch up later. Psalm 37.5, commit your way to the Lord. 
Trust also in him and he will do it. I need to commit totally. We sang that song earlier. I surrender. God, I just, I, I commit it all to you. It's all yours. I'm going to trust completely in you and he will do it. Psalm 5.3, this one I used to have written out on the whiteboard at the back of the store. Each morning I bring my request to you and I wait expectantly. I bring it to you, Lord, and now I wait expectantly for you to move. I, and the, the two words there that are key and in the order that they are, wait and expectantly. I'm expecting God to do something, but I need to wait while I do it. Another psalm, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I love that one. Did a word study on that years ago. Be still and know that I'm God. If you have a New American Standard, is what I teach out of and what I read mostly, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. But that still isn't the literally what it means. That word that says be still or cease striving means relax and drop it. If you have a Hebrew word, look up that word. It literally means drop it. <laughs> Let it go. Not just be still, but put it down. And I hear it almost like the Lord saying, put it down and back away. Right? <laughs> First Peter 5.7 says, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all of it on him. Casting that whole idea of pushing it away, dropping it, laying it down. And when I think of casting, I think of, of fishing. And any fisherman knows if you're going to be successful fishing, you got to cast it out there and then what? Wait. That's why I'm a horrible fisherman. After a couple of minutes, I think, man, I better check the bait. Must have fallen off the hook. Reel it in. Nope, there it is. Still haven't got it. Again, surrendering. Cast all your anxiety. Put it all on him. Each one, everything, the whole thing, all of our life, the big things, the little things. Cast it all on him. Wait patiently. Again, we see this as a, as a beautiful picture, illustration of faith, and that's what this is all about. Casting it all on him, it's all about faith. It's all completely in faith, and that requires humility. That, that is saying that we are acknowledging our own insufficiency, that I can't do it, I can't handle it. But in, again, that idea of surrender, and in that process, we are acknowledging his complete sufficiency, that he can handle it, it's all, it's all him. That, that faith, that complete, that jumping in faith, like bungee jumping, again, something I will, won't ever do. But when, once you do, once, once your feet leave that platform, you are com you're committed. You're, you're all in. And the difference, the only difference is what you've placed your faith in. A rubber band or God. You know, faith is only as good as the object that we place our faith in. And again, I go back to here, Ruth. Was she this giant of faith and this the experienced woman in faith? Well, she's brand new to the faith. But that, that doesn't matter. It's because her faith was completely in Yahweh, Almighty God. 
worry. <laughs> and instead of waiting, hey, got these statistics, or somebody had gotten these, some, someone had written this. 40% of the things that we worry about never happen. 30% of the things are about the past and we can't change them. 12% are things that are, are things about criticism by others that are mostly untrue. 10% about health, which gets worse when we stress. And eight things about real problems that we will be facing. The, the, the percentage of the things we worry about. Charles Spurgeon says, anxiety does nothing to empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. The man will not rest until he has settled it today. Who's, who's going to do the work? Who's going to take care of the whole thing? Boaz. You just sit and wait. If you go chasing Boaz around town to make sure he's going to do it and follow it, you're only going to mess things up. <laughs> For I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Philippians 1.6. All right, chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. That's where they did business back then in the city gates. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been to, been to different places. Tel Dan is one. When you walk into the city gate there, it was, a, it was kind of a little open square at the, at the city entrance, and the elders of the city would meet there and conduct business, and there was a, you know, the, the different matters would be brought there. So Boaz goes there to the gate, and he sits down, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Go figure. Again, coincidence? <laughs> I doubt it. Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, so they sat. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, I I'm just guessing maybe that Naomi and Ruth are probably maybe hiding behind the bushes or something just to kind of see. I don't know. That's not here. And, and Boaz, I don't think, you know, stresses too much at this, at this point because he's got a, another card in his sleeve, as we're going to see in a moment. But he said, he, he lays it all out there, and this next redeemer says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Here, here's what's on the line. You mean I'm going to get to buy all of that land? And in the process... I have to take Naomi in, this, this older woman, and, and sure, yeah, no problem. That's not going to mess anything up. No problem at all. Boaz, verse 5, said, On that day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the, the deceased, in order to raise up the name for the deceased on his inheritance. So, oh, by the way, did I fail to mention that you need to marry Ruth, too, and then have children with her in order to carry on the family name. The closest relative says, oh, uh, you know what? I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. 
Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. All of a sudden now, realizing that, okay, there's, there's a whole other part to this, that, that I will have to marry Ruth, have children with her, and then that child, that son that would come through there, now he has, he has right to inheritance. That's gonna mess everything up back home. Mama's not gonna like that. So, no, you, you take care of it. You, you, you go ahead and redeem it. He was sure interested in the land, but when it came to the bride, not interested. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of the land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was as the matter of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Again, part of this whole process, it was required. It was the the rule. We read it earlier that that closest redeemer do this process. Now this whole idea of the sandal continues. I had mentioned Deuteronomy 25 earlier. I read 5 and 6. Verse 7 says, But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists to say, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So, That was the process back then. We see that played out here, minus the spitting in the face part of it, the exchange of the sandal saying, here, I I am not, basically what he's saying is, I am not gonna fulfill my responsibility. You can go ahead and do that. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the people, you are witnesses today. I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and to the belongs to, to Chilion and Malon. Those are the two sons. Moreover, verse 10, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess. And I can only imagine that was set with, said with a little bit of excitement. Because remember the, the other guy, he was interested in the land, but not the bride. Boaz could care less about the land. All he wants is the bride. He wants the treasure. You know, Jesus uses that in a parable in Matthew saying the kingdom of heaven is, is like this treasure that is found in this land. And when the man finds it, he sells everything that he has to buy the land so that he can get the treasure. It's not about the land. It's about the treasure. To Boaz, it's not about the land. It's about Ruth. It's about the, his wife. I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the, make the woman who is coming into your house, house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built, up, built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. This amazing picture, an amazing story again, this love story that meets its completion now as they are, they are married. And we look at this again, this, this picture 
of, of Boaz as the, the kinsman redeemer. And again, the picture of Christ that he is in that Christ being our kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer, as we've mentioned a couple times through this, has to be a family member. Has to be a, a, a close member of the family. Jesus had to become one of us to be our redeemer. Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is, the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He became one of us. He had to become one of us in order to redeem us. It couldn't be an angel that came because an angel's not us, not one of us. It couldn't be a kinsman. He couldn't stay in his eternal glory and be our kinsman. He had to become one of us, stepping out of heaven. We have no idea, guys, that, what that step entails. I mean, we can try to draw all sorts of pictures as far as, you know, us becoming a maggot to save maggots. That still will fall infinitely short of the step that Jesus took to become one of us. Yet he did it willingly. Why? Because he loves us. How great the Father's love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Couldn't be any one of us. It couldn't be a prophet. It couldn't be a priest. It couldn't be John the Baptist, who Jesus said is greatest man, the greatest man born of woman. Couldn't be any. Why? Because we all are sinners. We all, we all fall short. It had to be that perfect one and only Jesus, fully God, fully man, perfect in his life. Paul wrote to Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. We talked that he did this to, to buy us out of slavery, our slavery to sin, slavery to death, and that is what the kinsman redeemer did. But the kinsman redeemer, in addition to the qualifications, because we saw a couple of men being qualified, first of all, had to be able financially to buy the person out of slavery, out of bondage, to acquire that. Jesus certainly able to do that, but also had to be willing. We saw one who was qualified, who was able, but who was unwilling. Interesting. When it goes, if we look back at verse one of chapter four, it says, turn aside friend. I don't know what it says in some other translations. My margin says certain one. That word that's there is kind of, in, kind of a weird one to try to, uh, try to understand, but one commentator I, I, I saw said, basically it says Mr. So-and-so. Turn aside here, Mr. So-and-so. Obviously, Boaz knew his name and probably called him by his name. Everybody there probably knew his name. But because of the way he handled this, his name's been pretty much written off. And interesting that this, this one who had the ability to and in faith didn't, didn't follow through in faith, didn't follow through with his ob obligation, is kind of written off in history. Kind of like, again, Orpah isn't mentioned here as the other daughter that stayed back because she didn't step out in faith and move forward in that. 
The word redeem is used 12 times, or redemption is used 12 times in chapter 4. Again, that redemption, a price needed to be paid. And we know that the price paid for us was the very precious blood of our Lord and Savior. Well, it continues. Moreover, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. When the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than, than Better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This, this idea here even pointing to, to the child as this giver of new life now to, to Naomi. This, this child now that is her grandson and in her lap and that joy of being a grandparent. Can you understand that? Grandparent, the joy of being a grandparent. I heard the, the, the reason they're called grandchildren, it's because it's grand when they come and it's grand when they go. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm about to be grandpa a second time on Friday. So, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> Something just so special now about this child. Verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Gives the genealogy then, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron born Ram. And to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon. And to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz, Obed. Obed was born Jesse, and Jesse, David. We see just in a couple of generations, King David through this, this family. What an, again, what an amazing story that we see here. The amazing picture that it is for us. It's historical, certainly. It's this bridge that we've talked about between, between the book of Judges, even though this happens towards the beginning of the book of Judges, and what we will get into studying next, the time of the kings eventually as we get into 1 Samuel. Very practical as we've looked at it. Very providential. We see God's hand moving providentially through this entire story. The beautiful picture of, of salvation for us in it. I guess I'd like to, again, as we kind of began our study in Ruth, just as a, as a reminder of this, because this was in a very dark time. It's a beautiful story, but it's happening during a very dark time. This is during the time of the judges, when we've, when we've spoken of where men were doing what was right in their own eyes and, and turning their back on God. In a very difficult and dark time, we see this story of, of salvation we see this story of God's providential hand continuing his plan 
Again, not only is King David born through this line, but we know ultimately through this very line, the Messiah, Jesus, is born. God's plan, his hand in action, moving all this through. And we can look back at this and say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, almost looking at it like you know, a fairy tale story in the Bible. This wasn't a story to Ruth and Boaz. This was real life. We can't, sometimes we look at that, we read through this and we say, all right, that story is gone and now the next one. Those moments as they were going through them, real life, moment by moment. Our real lives, moment by moment. And it's, I think it's easy, it, it's, it is for me anyway, to look at this and, and place ourselves right in this story because we are in those dark times. The world all around us is doing what is right in their own eyes turning their back on God. But God's not done. God's hand is still very active in the lives of his people. And we as his people need to be actively saying, all right, Lord, what is it that you would have me do? How is it that you would have me serve? I just want to close because instead of even paraphrasing it, I want to just read it. This is out of Warren Wiersbe's commentary on Ruth. It says, but the book of Ruth illustrates the believer's deepening relationship with the Lord. In chapter one, Ruth doesn't even know that Boaz exists. In chapter two, Ruth is a poor laborer gleaning in the field of Boaz and receiving his gifts. To her, Boaz is only a mighty man of wealth who shows kindness to her. The turning point is in chapter three, where Ruth yields herself at the feet of Boaz and believes his promises. The result is recorded in chapter four. Ruth is no longer a poor gleaner, for now she has Boaz, and everything he owns belongs to her. To many of God's, uh, too many of God's people are content to live in chapter two, picking up the leftovers and doing the best they can in their difficult situation. They want God's gifts, but they don't want a deeper communion with God. What a difference it would make if they would only surrender themselves to the Lord and focus on the giver instead of the gifts. The book of Ruth reminds us that God is at work in our world, seeking a bride and reaping a harvest, and we must find our place in his program of winning the lost. The events in the book of Ruth occurred during a period of judges, a time not too different from our own today. If you focus only on the evils of our day, you'll become pessimistic and cynical. But if you ask God what field he wants you to work in faithfully and serve him there, you'll experience his grace, love, and joy. As I was reading that today, I was thinking, man, that's, that is a great segue to where we're going this weekend in, in Matthew. Because we are called to play an active role and an active part in what God is doing. Regardless of how dark it is, regardless of the situation and, the, and everything that's going on around us, he's doing a great work. He's still actively involved. He is the one who still makes all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful love story. And Lord, we thank you for the beautiful love story that you have called us into. The story of your amazing love your incredible love that you have poured out upon us, your redeeming love 
Lord, that you redeemed us, that you purchased us out of our slavery and bondage to sin and to death with your own blood. And Lord, it is our desire to surrender completely to you. Lord, to lay ourselves down at your feet. Lord, would you cover us with your protection? Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and use us for your purposes and your glory? We thank you, Lord, for calling us. We thank you for using us. Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a, have a good week.